Uh, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Malachi, it is the last book of the Old Testament, and uh, I'm just going to keep going with the Old Testament theme, okay? I'm getting closer to the New Testament, though, as Clay told me this morning. I'm just one book away, so um, we're going to continue in the Old Testament. I think of 70 or 80% of my sermons have been in the Old Testament here at LifePoint, so I love the Old Testament. So, um, I'm a fan of good mini-series. I don't know if you folks are as well, but um, it seems like these days uh, a lot of television shows just kind of draw out longer than they should, and eventually the plot just kind of gets convoluted. Okay, if you're a fan of Lost, you realize this, okay, um, because I was lost by the end of Lost, okay, so, uh, so y- you can hopefully just pick up on what I'm saying, Many series are good in another reason, because they're often longer episodes in length, uh, and they're more action-packed, so I love, I love those things, so they're kind of like movies that stretch out five or six episodes, uh, but they're condensed in content and in their uh, length. Uh, And so here's what the museum, there's actually a museum of broadcast communications. This is what they define a miniseries as. It is a narrative drama designed to be a broadcast in a limited number of episodes. Kind of like hence the name, right? Uh, But look, it goes on, it says, The miniseries at its best offers a unique television experience, often dealing with harrowing and difficult material structured into an often transformative narrative. Unlike indefinitely running programs, there's a clearly defined beginning, a middle, and an end. Okay, you see where this is this whole convolutedness comes. Enabling characters to change, mature, or even die as the serial proceeds. And so I did a little research um, in that great uh, database called the International Movie Database. Um, and the 50 most popular miniseries, according to the IMBD, or DB, uh, include this, Band of Brothers, North and South, John Adams, these great historical dramas that, that I love personally. Um, and, uh, the, but the one at the top that just kind of threw me, and my wife and some of the other ladies here I know will celebrate this uh, right now, the number one most popular miniseries is Gilmore Girls, A Year in the Life. Um, so apparently it's the most popular and it has yet to even be un- unveiled yet. So, but nonetheless, it's apparently a miniseries and thank God it is. Um, <laughs> because I'm so tired of hearing about it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but here's the thing about miniseries, um, and it just kind of harkens back in my mind to uh, the minor prophets remind me a lot of this idea of a miniseries in the sense that the minor prophets are shorter in literary extent, uh, but they are packed in great redemptive content for us in terms of what they're trying to convey to us. Um, as one commentator stated, it says, These prophets bring forth and sped on their way not a few of the streams of living water which have nourished later ages and are flowing today still. And so my hope and my desire for us this morning as we look at the book of Malachi is that we would drink deeply from this living water that the prophets show us uh, in the minor prophets. And so um, we're going to be in the last of these 12 minor prophets this morning. 
in Malachi chapter 3. And it, as I said earlier, is the one that actually concludes our Old Testament. And it's the book of Malachi, not Malachi, the Italian prophet, as many have said, but it's Malachi. Um, And what I believe about Malachi, and this is a book that I've spent uh, numerous uh, time studying, and and the Lord just seems to bring a freshness every time for me. And so I'll just confess to you this morning uh, that this sermon is birthed out of something the Lord has deeply been, been working in my own life and heart. And so uh, and so I look forward to at looking at the center of this important book because here's what it, it, here's what it reminds us. It reminds us of God's love for us, the thing that I am most often guilty of, of wavering away from. And God's people are most often guilty of missing and forgetting. Uh, and it reminds us of our true nature and identity as his people and what that means for our life today. So So this morning I want us to look at Malachi chapter 3 as we consider this. Jesus is the messenger. This is the main thing we're shooting for. Jesus is the messenger and purifier of God sent to redeem us to an authentic life of grace. So Jesus is the messenger and purifier of God sent to redeem us to an authentic life of grace. So Malachi is unique uh, in the way it is written. It is a book unlike any other, even, even among the 12 other minor prophets. Uh, we don't get an introduction to who Malachi is. We don't get a biographical sketch of him like we do most of the other prophets. As a matter of fact, the name Malachi may not even be a name of an actual individual because the, name, the word for Malachi simply means God's messenger. And so the whole book today we're going to look at is God is telling us a message and he's sending us a messenger. And our hope is that we would drink deeply from the grace of this messenger this morning. But here's the point. God simply sends us a messenger in the book of Malachi. And here's the message God has for his people in this book. He has some questions to ask of their heart. The book is actually made up of some 27 different questions over the course of four chapters uh, where you have God's people questioning him and then him answering with another question. Don't you just love that? Did you ever have parents that did that? Like you ask them a question and they don't really answer it, they just ask you another question. Um, I do that and Lindsay hates it and our students hate it, but this is kind of what the Lord's doing. So I'm just, hey, I'm picking up on what God's doing, okay? So here's the thing. Malachi is all about these questions and God responding with his own question. He's questioning uh, our hearts to return to what it is he's called us to. And so Malachi is a book about getting real, real with God and real with ourselves. It's a book um, about what it really means to know and walk with the Lord. Uh, And it's the last book, as I said, of the Old Testament. And so after God's people have settled back into uh, the land, they've they've come from exile, Um, temple activities have continued once again, and yet here's the problem that happens. God's people have missed the point somehow in the process of getting things back going. Again, business as usual has resumed, and the activity has kind of taken the place of the whole meaning and purpose behind it. And so they're just kind of going through the motions, keeping up appearances. And so all of their worship becomes about externals, rituals, and duties that have no real substance internally. They have no eternal 
internal reality. And so the main point of the whole book, and we're going to kind of fly over the point of the book and look at the very heart of it this morning, is that God doesn't want our, just our outward projections and empty observances, our appearances. He wants us. He wants us. And so real faith this morning, I hope, and I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning, isn't about externals as we often default to, but it is a, something that works itself from the inside out. And so this is the book of, this is the message of the book of Malachi, and it's what I want us to look at this morning. So uh, let's jump into Malachi chapter 3, and let's look at verses 1 through 4 together. This is what the word of the Lord says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. I pray God would bless the hearing, the reading, understanding, and the applying, and the hoping in his word this morning. And so uh, I want to give you this morning from this quick, short, yet action-packed, full text of redemption for us, three roles of Jesus as the coming messenger of God's grace from this passage this morning. The first one is this, is that Jesus reveals to us the promised grace of the Father. We see this in verse 1. The structure of the book of Malachi, as I've said, is a series of questions. God's people are questioning him, uh, and God returns by questioning them back. Uh, They've questioned his goodness, his justice, his trustworthiness, and his grace. And here's the thing. This is what it was affecting. It was affecting their relationship with God and even with one another. And so you read in chapter 2 that their unfaithfulness to God's covenant with them was actually bleeding into their unfaithfulness to other covenants and other relationships. And specifically in chapter 2, their marital relationships were suffering because their relationships with God were suffering. And so we see how all of this this off-centeredness affects all of these different areas of our life when we're off-centered with what the Lord wants to do in our life. When we're off-centered from his grace to us. And so it's affecting a multitude of these different areas that he's calling into account. Um, and above all else, here's, here's the main thing that God brings before them. And this is the thing that just resonates in me more than anything. And it is this, the first line of the message of Malachi. If you'll flip over and even look at it with me together. The very first line in chapter 2, after we get introduced to the messenger, Malachi, this is the Lord's message to his people. I have loved you. And I'll confess to you, this is a message that I miss most often. 
Because their response is, how have you loved us? And so this is why we gather every week. This is why the gospel is so good, because it calls us back to this main message. I have loved you. And yet so often our hearts wander from that and say, how? This is the off-centeredness that begins the whole process. They had forgotten God had loved them. They had forgotten how God had even loved him. Take, this, is, uh, this is over 1,500, 2,000 years into God's redemptive plan at work in them already. And yet they have completely forgotten God's grace to them. How he's loved them, how he's delivered them from slavery, how he's called them to himself. They have forgotten the privilege that they had come to know God by his grace. And so their answer is, how have you loved us? So they've not only lost their sense of joy in performing out of kind of an apathetic duty, but they had actually forgotten the very foundation of their identity before God, that he had loved them, that he had given them a promise, and that he had called them to himself by his grace from the foundation of all things. And so they had forgotten the promise of his covenant long ago. You see, throughout this book, there's a reminder of God's covenant. And so the covenant first appears in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God says to Abraham, who at this time is Abram, the father of the nation of Israel, this is the covenant he gives to to him. He says, go from your country to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And later on we see this continually coming up. God reminding his people of this covenant. I will be your God and and you will be my people. And I will bless you and I've called you to myself. Not anything based on your worth or your merits or what you've done in your account, but simply by my grace, I've called you to myself to be a blessing that my blessings may flow from you and in you to others and ultimately that all nations may be blessed through you. They'd forgotten this promise above all else. They'd forgotten this great love And this promise from God who had called them to himself. And so in the midst of all of the questions and the indictments that are kind of laced throughout the book of Malachi, at its very center is a promised hope. And it is this. Behold, I send my messenger. And so there are two messengers in this text. Um, Again, the whole book's about a messenger, but... It's easy to kind of miss there's, there's a couple of different messengers at work here all pointing to the main one though, okay? And so the first messenger is what? He's the preparer. God says that there will be a messenger in verse 1 who will come prepare the way before me, he says. So he's kind of like the grading crew that comes in, prepares the land, you know, and all that before the foundation's laid and everything. He kind of gets everything ready there's a preparer who will come in the spirit of Elijah later on in chapter 4, he says, and he will prepare the way before another messenger. Uh, in Matthew 11, verse 14, Jesus confirms that this messenger is John the Baptist. 
So he's the one who's come beforehand to prepare the way of the Lord. Of another messenger who is to come. And we see this also in verse 1. He prepares the way before the Lord whom you seek, who will suddenly come to his temple as the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. So the second messenger who comes after the previous one preparing the way is who? He is the messenger of the covenant. The Lord himself who will come to his people in the temple and set up shop right among them. So this is glorious good news. Not only is God coming with a message, he's coming with a messenger. He's coming himself to show us the way. And so after 400 years of silence, at the end of the book of Malachi, so at the end of Malachi, there's 400 years that God does not speak. His people do not hear from him. This is his last words to them. So if you can imagine, this being the last of 400 years of silence, then entering in grandeur, we have this announcement from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, just in case you missed it, okay? In him was life, and, in the, in, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, who is full of grace and truth. John, being John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God except for the only God who is at the Father's side, who has made him known to us. This is good news. This is the announcement of the messenger. The messenger who will show us God. The messenger who is the Lord himself who will come to his people and remind them of his covenant love to them. Remind them of the thing that founds their identity above all else, of which we are most prone to wander from. This is what this messenger comes. He is God himself. This is how God has loved us. He has sent his messenger. Behold, the messenger of promise has come by shedding his blood. He has fulfilled God's covenant and by taking away sin through the shedding of his own blood. And through him, as this text says, we receive grace. And through him, we can know God. Only God himself can show us God. And so the good news this morning is when we ask, how has God loved us? We need look no further than his messenger. He has come and dwelt among us that we might know grace upon grace and that we might know the God in whom we were made to know. And so a messenger's role is found in what? Um, My grandfather, for instance, was a mail carrier for years And so his role, obviously, was to carry a message, right? And so 
um, the role of the messenger is that he holds a message that he is tasked to make known. And Jesus comes with a task and a message to make known. And this message is grace and truth are realized in him. Through Moses, the law was given, yet through Jesus, grace and truth come and are known and are fully realized. That which is anticipated is now realized fully to its fullness extent in Christ. And this is the message that Jesus comes to give and embody to us. Grace and truth are ours to be received in him. And so here's what this means. And this is wrecking me. That on my best day and on my worst day, when I am in Christ, I am not moved from this identity. That's good news. And because I'm not moved to what is central to my identity, I realize He has loved me, He has loved us, and from His fullness, no matter where we might find ourselves, we have received grace upon grace upon grace by which we can stand. And so here's the good news for us, that again, it is not based on our merits, it's not based on our performance, it is based on His grace. And this is the thing I am most often wandering from. And so grace like this is something that never should lose its wonder, right? It continues to work in us. It's kind of like, why, I'm not, I by no means know anatomy and physiology or any of that. Um, but what I do know is red blood, uh, white blood cells, when there's, when there's an attack or there's an affection or anything, what do those things do? They, they eradicate anything that's contrary that poses a threat, right? And so it will eradicate all that is hostile to what is healthy, right? And so grace in the same way, when it, when it takes hold of our identity, when Christ comes and makes His dwelling in us by faith, His grace eradicates all that is hostile to this newfound identity in Him. And so it's those that live in the love of Christ that will find themselves sinning less. Because this grace works from the inside out. And so that leads me to the second point here in this text is Jesus not only reveals to us the promised hope of uh, grace of the Father, but he is now the refining uh, fire of the Father. He is the one that refines sons for a treasured possession. He refines for a treasured possession. Um, We see this in verses 2 and 3, that there's an image given here um, of a refining fire and a fuller soap. And so the the, the point here is that the messenger's coming is one where no one leaves unaffected. You don't escape a fire unaffected, right? When fire comes, it consumes all. Even if you're not even in it, you get at least get the smoke from it, right? And so it comes, it consumes all. But this is not just any fire. This is the fires that refine. And a... A fire that refines is one that purifies by burning away. 
by making hot in order that all that is corrupt and tainted uh, can be removed that the substance of value might more clearly shine through. So the image here specifically is a refiner of silver. Um, and so I don't, I'm, n- I'm not a silversmith, but what I do know about the refining process, just by the little bit of research I've done, is you heat this metal to melting temperatures, right? So it becomes liquid form, and as it burns and becomes hot, all of the waste material that is built up within it rises to the surface. So whatever kind of metals or minerals that are within the silver float up to the top as dross or waste. And so what happens is then as that refinement happens and those things rise to the top, then the refiner can scoop off the top and remove the dross, the waste, so that there's a pure whole. Still silver, right? But now it's refined silver and it's a pure form. It still has value. In and of itself, it's still silver. But it's a purer form of silver because of the refiner's work. The same is true in the other images of a fuller soap. A fuller was essentially a launderer. So if you're like me and you get stains on everything, okay, it gets all over you, you know, you're constantly bringing stuff to your wife to try to get spots out and stuff. This is a fuller was someone who was made white cloth. So it was something that would be a whitener. So there's another picture of not just purity, but a whiteness that comes here from the messenger's work in us. And so Here's what I believe this means. There's some commentators who will suggest that this text is only referring to the day of the Lord or the return of Christ uh, to purge the world of wickedness and fully consummate or bring to bear uh, his redemption. And so I believe this is gloriously true because verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 mention this is true, that this is looking forward to a day where Jesus will come fully and he will make, he'll bring the fullness of what he's come to redeem and to bear. But yet, I see also that there's evidence here that Jesus' first coming was to a refining work. We call this, we call this realized eschatology, okay? $5 word, I know, but it really means this, that we live in an already but not yet state. That Jesus has done this already, and yet we await, because there's a but not yet. And so here's what this means for us, is that John says, He will baptize us in the Holy Spirit in fire, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 says. And so, when Christ comes and His Spirit comes upon us, His work in the Christian now has a purging effect, a purifying effect, a refining effect of sin in our life. We are righteous in Christ, and so we are becoming righteous as Christ. We are growing into what God has declared us to be. 
And so this is how grace works in us. This is how his love works in us. We're being refined, or excuse me, as Titus puts it this way, we are being renewed because we have been regenerated in the Spirit. Both are the Spirit's work. He awakens us to newness of life through Christ's declared work. You are justified in Christ. You are righteous, but now there's a renewal. That grace that saved you now masters you. And so there's a renewal and a regeneration of the Spirit that comes through salvation when we trust Christ. And so Malachi says, okay, this is the point of the messenger, but what's his purpose to, and to whom is his purpose? Look at verses 16 through 18 in chapter 3 with me. This is to whom God's doing this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. And so the purpose of God's refinement upon us is that he is refining a treasured possession. He is making pure what he values most. If you guys have a classic car or anything you love, you want that thing pristine, right? We cherish what we value most. And what God's saying here is he refines, he purifies what he values most, and that is his children. Through Christ. And so God's purpose is that we may be made into something of pure value, and that is the image of Christ Jesus. He comes into us to undo and remove the dross of sin and flesh, that the glory and righteousness that's true of us in Christ may shine through. So here's something that I want you to be aware of, because it's something I think we are often prone to miss, is this that we should not be surprised as we grow in our walk with Christ, as we, as we draw near to Christ, if we become more acutely aware of sin in our life. That we become more aware of sin coming to the surface that the Lord is showing us. And so our tendency in those moments is to try to hide that, to be ashamed of that, to suppress that, to cover that up. Or to see it as something other than godliness. But no matter how painful or how uncomfortable that may be, that's grace getting underneath sin and brokenness in our life and bringing it to the surface that our Lord and Savior may be able to deal with it as we give it over to Him. That's how refining works in the life of the Christian. And so, um, as one writer put this, I love this illustration. If you've ever owned a slinky back in the day, um, you know those things got bent up every now and then, right? And uh, fixing sin, this is what this author says, is like trying to fix a crimped slinky, okay? You might think of it just, uh, you might think if you just sit on it long enough, it'll straighten out. Okay, you ever seen that? You just like, 
hold it. Oh, that's fixed, right? And then you, sitting there, you think you've really got a handle on straightening stuff out. But no matter how long you sit, when you get up, that slinky springs right back. Compromised coiled metal doesn't straighten out by external pressure, and neither does sin. That is a work of grace. And so the scriptures talk about this as putting off the old self and putting on the new. That which is in Christ and taking off the flesh. And here's what the flesh is by definition. The flesh is an earthly natural nature of mankind that is opposed to the will and purposes of God. It is a natural principle of self-reliance that is at work in us and that we constantly look to. Okay? That's the flesh. And I'm sure you're aware of it. But Romans 8 says that Jesus came to condemn and liberate us from sin that we may no longer live for the flesh but for the spirit. It has no power over us. And as those who are free from sin, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh in order to live as sons of God. We are saved to be formed into Jesus in whom's image we are being made righteous already. And so here's the application for us is that historically you've seen this. Defeated enemies tend to pillage in their retreat. Uh, and they seek to do as much damage because they know their days are numbered, right? So... The Christian is called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Those things that come natural to us in our, in our bend to be self-reliant instead of God-dependent. And to keep standing in His grace because we know that our Savior is with us in the fight. He's not waiting for us to clean it up before we come to Him or be used by Him. But He enters into it. And he's already defeated the enemy. And he will one day crush him completely, as this text alludes to. But because you are now under grace in which you stand, drink deeply from it. And put to death the deeds of the flesh. Drink deeply from his grace and breathe it in, for it is your life and it is the thing that is making you, Christian, new. It's making you new. You are already a new creation in Christ, but this is now making you new. It's making all things new. And so that leads us to the last of this messenger's role. He is the hope of full restoration. He is the hope of full restoration. Jesus restores justice and unhindered worship fully. We see this in verse 4. God's answer to their question in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 17. Again, remember, they're questioning God. God comes right back. This is their question in verses two, chapter 2, verse 17. Is this, where is the God of justice? And yet, this is God's answer. I send my messenger. He is coming. He is coming. And so the Christian stands as the only one with the hope of full restoration. God is making all things new through His Son, including you and I. And being the dork that I am, I'm going to quote Sam Wise Gamgee on this. 
from the return of the king by Tolkien. And he says this, every sad thing is becoming untrue for those in Christ. Everything sad is becoming untrue. And one day, the scriptures assure us, he will wipe away every tear, and eventually there will be no more hostility, but the nations will gather before the throne of the Lamb. And so the last message of the New Testament picks up on the last one of the Old Testament in Malachi. Revelation 22, verse 20 says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen, Lord Jesus, come. That's our message that we stand in. That is the grace that we breathe in assurance that he, is, he has come and He is coming soon. And so in the days of waiting and the days of injustice, which seem to be all too many these days, and the days of seeming silence when we long for complete emancipation from sin and brokenness in this world, God's resounding answer is still the same. I have loved you. Will you stand in that identity? Or will you be moved from it? And, behold, I send my messenger. He is coming soon. He's coming. And so Jesus is the messenger and purifier of God, sent to redeem us to an authentic life of grace. Someone who's helped me in this area of recent is a guy by the name of Nate Larkin. And uh, he's helping me understand this idea of just walking in the grace of the Lord and instead of these fabrications that I often default to when I've moved somehow from it. Uh, this kind of projecting an appearance of ha- okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna joke on this having it all together, okay? Um, I know that's not what that means, but uh, here's what he says. He says only God can create a real person, a complete person, body, soul, and spirit. But God has given to each of us the bi- the ability to create personalities. We will use these, this God-given ability to create multiple personalities, <laughs> independent personas that hide from each other. Here's the biggest problem with personas. A false self can never rest. It looks like a real person, but a persona is actually just a hologram, a projected image, and it requires constant energy to keep that image up. A persona is afraid to go to sleep because to sleep is to die. The religious persona is probably the most tragic figure of all because it recognizes spiritual realities that it can only pretend to experience. And that's where God's people find themselves in Malachi. A persona can perform, but it can never love. It can know excitement, but it can never experience joy. It can feel numbness, but it can never know peace. A persona can be persistent, but not patient. Subtle, but not gentle. Sweet, but not good. It can feel fervor, but it can never know faith. It can be modest, but not gentle. Or excuse me, not humble. It can It may starve itself by sheer force of will, but a persona can never achieve self-control because it has no continuing self. The biblical word for persona is flesh. And the Bible makes it plain that no matter how spiritual or religious it appears, 
flesh is always hostile to God. It may mimic righteousness, it may fiend repentance, but flesh cannot see God, cannot know God, and cannot love God. I wonder this morning if you would join me in, instead of our constant default of keeping up appearances, that we would bring our whole person to Jesus and dare bank on how much he loves us and how rich this grace is to us by which we stand. And so will you say yes to an authentic life of Christ and bring whatever grace may be getting under in this moment, whatever may be, he be bubbling to the surface, rather than sitting on it and hoping it goes away, that you may bring that to, that to him, knowing that he's ready to receive you just as you are. As the worship team returns, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace and truth that are realized in Christ Jesus. And in coming, you have made a way that we might know and receive your grace by which we can stand by which you have declared us by faith righteous. And as we rest and breathe and live in this grace, you are making us righteous. You are making us that which you've declared us to be. And so, Lord, I confess I am the one who needs this message more than perhaps anyone in this room. That I too often forget that you've loved me. As such, I try to pave a way that is my own doing that you call flesh. That I project an appearance that is often not one that you've called me to. And so, Lord, I pray for your people in this room, perhaps, that may be living in some other gospel of projection, that may be suppressing some grace that you have been drawing something to the surface and their temptation will be to suppress that, to sit on that rather than to bring it out into the light that you may do away with it and so God I pray that we may live in the identity that you've declared us to be in your grace and that we may be bold enough to say yes to you perhaps for the first time for the hundredth time as the one who is making us new. God, help us to stand in this grace as we celebrate your work among us and may we rest in it as you make us new for your glory, as your treasured inheritance, as your sons and daughters. Thank you for this grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray.